Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden won't face charges in connection with an investigation into the mishandling of some classified documents. Special counsel Robert Hur released his findings yesterday and in the report criticized Biden's mental ability. Biden defended himself last night, as NPR's Mara Eliasson reports. Hur decided not to press charges over Biden's handling of classified documents that he kept after his vice presidency. But Hur described Biden, who was 81, as a, quote, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Biden responded this way. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. Biden's age and verbal gaffes are a big problem for voters. Majorities say they worry he's not fit to serve another four years. Mara Eliasson, NPR News. A group of top Biden aides met with Arab, American, and Muslim leaders in Michigan yesterday and discussed the war in Gaza. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the White House is trying to mend ties with a vital constituency in a key swing state. President Biden has faced opposition from within his own party as the civilian death toll in Gaza rises. The frustration is particularly personal among some Arab Americans who feel the administration has dehumanized Palestinians. Abraham Ayash is a member of the Michigan House and met with Biden officials. The White House can no longer say that they did not know or they, they don't know how frustrated people have been and what kind of pain is there. So now their actions will give us a clear indication of whether or not they care or respect our communities. Ayash says they made it clear they want an immediate ceasefire. The White House has been opposing a permanent ceasefire. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump has won the Nevada Republican caucuses and the GOP caucuses in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Both contests are awarding presidential delegates. Nevada held a state primary earlier this week, but no Republican delegates will be awarded from that vote. The U.S. Supreme Court has heard arguments over whether Donald Trump can be excluded from Colorado's presidential primary ballot. He is accused of engaging in insurrection. But the justices seemed skeptical in yesterday's arguments that Trump should be disqualified from the ballot. China's leader Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin had a phone call right before China's Lunar New Year holidays began. Xi has praised the close ties between the two countries. NPR's Emily Fang tells us she has pledged to keep up that close contact. She applauded the increased trade between China and Russia and said China was willing to continue to work with Putin to strengthen a relationship that had withstood decades of tribulation. It's a sign that she is doubling down on this no-limits partnership that he struck with Putin two years ago this month. Despite condemnation from Western countries after Russia invaded Ukraine shortly after that partnership was signed. NPR's Emily Fang reporting. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Longtime Boston Symphony Orchestra conductor Seiji Ozawa has died. Ozawa led the BSO from 1973 to 2002, longer than any conductor in the orchestra's history. His management office said Ozawa died of heart failure at his home in Tokyo. He was 88 years old. Boston school officials say they're working to enroll students living in the newly opened migrant shelter site in Roxbury. A BPS spokesperson tells the Boston Herald that 78 students from the shelter are enrolled. The housing site at the Melnia Cass Recreation Complex opened last week. Earlier this week, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu said the shelter is already near its 400 family capacity. A top MBTA official says federal regulators are pleased with the authority's efforts 
efforts to make the transit system safer. The Federal Transit Administration found the T staffing shortages and a backlog of maintenance projects contributed to accidents and service disruptions. But Meredith Sandberg, the MBTA's Chief of Quality Compliance and Oversight, told the T's Board of Directors yesterday that a recent meeting with federal regulators went well. They believe that the MBTA has started to turn the corner in terms of safety culture and our approach to responding to both safety incidents uh, in specific and also our longer-term planning capabilities. The board is looking for documentation that showed that the Federal Transit Administration is approving some of the changes at the T. Several UMass Amherst students have appeared in court after being arrested during a protest in October. The group was arrested while demanding that the university cut ties with defense contractor Raytheon. Nirvani Williams reports they also wanted the school to condemn the violence in Gaza. The 21 students who were arrested showed up at the Eastern Hampshire District Court in Belchertown. The district attorney decided to reduce their trespassing charges to a civil infraction, which the students say they intend to fight. Ruya Hazayan is one of the seniors arrested and co-president of the Students for Justice in Palestine organization. She believes the university is treating them unfairly. We are also being punished in ways that protesters before us have not been punished, which tells us that there is a political message with what they're doing to us. A UMass spokesperson says the students refused to leave the Whitmore building after it closed and are facing an internal student conduct investigation. The student's next court date is April 23rd. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. The time is seven minutes past seven. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. The Bruins shut out the Vancouver Canucks at the Garden last night. The final score, 4-0. to zero. The Bees are off tonight before they face off against the Washington Capitals tomorrow. Celtics are getting ready to host the Washington Wizards. Tip-off is at 7.30. It'll be mostly cloudy today, but temperatures in the upper 40s. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the 30s. Tomorrow, it'll be partly cloudy. A chance of afternoon showers. Temperatures in the mid-50s tomorrow and Sunday, sunshine with highs around 50 degrees. It is 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for being with us this morning on WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include UCSF Health. The cancer team at UCSF San Francisco is working to uncover new and better ways to target and destroy cancer cells. Learn more at ucsfhealth.org targeting cancer. Did I mention it's Friday? And this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. The Justice Department issued a report yesterday that said there was evidence that President Biden willfully mishandled old classified documents. But it also said his actions did not warrant criminal charges. The report by Special Counsel Robert Hur, though, magnified another issue, Biden's mental acuity, as he campaigns for a second term in the White House. Joining us now to talk about all this is NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good morning, Asma. Good morning. So this report was more than 300 pages with photos showing where some of these documents were found. 
But that's not what is getting the most attention, right? Tell us what is, Asma. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, to be clear, the report does clear the president, as you say, of any criminal wrongdoing. But right. the special counsel injected questions about the president's mental sharpness into this report. And at one point, it describes the president as a, quote, sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Mm. It described the president as having trouble remembering specific timelines and details. The White House said these comments were inappropriate and irrelevant. What is Biden saying? So Biden points out that his situation was in stark contrast to former President Donald Trump, who is facing criminal charges over classified documents. Last evening, Biden held a hastily arranged press conference where he was very angry about suggestions that he had mixed up timelines of when his son died. But, you know, Leila, the reason this report is so damaging to the president is that it cements a perception that a lot of voters already have, that Biden is too old to do the job. And, mm -hmm. you know, frankly, it is an issue that the campaign cannot easily quell. Uh, polls indicate that age is the president's biggest political liability, and it's not just an issue with Republicans, also with some Democrats. And now because of this report, I think it's an issue that, you know, might have been whispered about before, but is now being very much openly discussed publicly. Reporters in the room last night asked very blunt questions like, is your memory getting worse? Uh, the president insisted his memory is fine. And at times last night, Biden seemed very defensive. Here's an exchange with CNN reporter MJ Lee. Many American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. Okay, so Biden's downplaying it there. But as you mentioned, these concerns are very real among voters, including voters NPR has interviewed. So where is this coming from? Well, the president is 81, and the challenge for Biden is that he has repeatedly mixed up people and names. And, you know, it even happened last night when he was responding to a question about Israel and Gaza. Initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. And Biden there meant to say the president of Egypt. And, you know, Leila, his broader answer was actually rather newsy, but it got overshadowed by this very tangible example of something that does concern people. And this comes on the heels of three other incidents in recent days where the president mixed up current world leaders with their long dead predecessors. The White House was asked about these incidents and the press secretary pointed out that lots of people misspeak. Now, I assume Republicans are delighting in this, right? That's right. The RNC quickly issued a statement saying this is proof that Biden can't handle the job. You know, the thing is, though, that his likely opponent in this election, Donald Trump, is 77 and also faces serious questions about his mental sharpness. Uh, for example, he recently mixed up his GOP challenger, Nikki Haley, and the former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Then NPR's Asma Khalid. Thank you, and Asma. Thank you. So I got a chance yesterday to listen to the Supreme Court arguments over keeping Donald Trump off the presidential ballot. Our colleague Scott Detrow anchored live coverage on NPR with audio as lawyers spoke and the justices posed questions in the courtroom. It sounded like liberal and conservative justices alike were skeptical of Colorado's ruling that Trump is not eligible to run because he engaged in an insurrection, meaning his failed effort to overturn his 2020 election defeat. Constitutional law scholar Kate Shaw is at the University of Pennsylvania, and she was listening, too. Good morning. Good morning. I just want to note some critics of Trump found this to be obvious, a slam dunk. The Constitution has this language about how you can't hold office if you previously took an oath. 
and then you engaged in insurrection, and then everybody saw the January 6th attack. That's what critics of Trump have said. What makes it less obvious, at least in the eyes of the justices? You know, it is obvious in many ways if you take seriously the text of the Constitution that seems to disqualify individuals from office if they engaged in insurrection, and also if you take seriously the history of this language in the Constitution, which was clearly added to exclude from public office insurrectionists. So for a court that holds itself out as privileging these, you know, text and history sources, um, it would seem to be a very difficult case, actually, for President Trump and a good case for Colorado. Um, but interestingly, in this argument, the justices seemed much less focused on text and history than on the practical, right? So as Justice Elena Kagan, one of the court's Democratic appointees, basically asked, why should a single state get to decide who gets to be president? So I think they were really focused on the practical consequences of letting this Colorado Supreme Court opinion stand, and that seemed to be front of mind for all of them. Oh, interesting. Now, they did raise a bunch of technicalities. For example, does the language about an officer of the United States, does it include the president of the United States, and who counts as having previously taken taking an oath and that sort of thing. Were you unimpressed by the technicalities here? You're right that the technicalities did come up, and you have all these distinct terms in the amendment. Officer and office both separately appear. What does insurrection mean? The disqualification applies to someone who holds office, but does that mean you still get to run for office, and then maybe Congress can remove the disqualification because the amendment provides for that? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those arguments were ventilated. There was some probing of them. But it almost seemed perfunctory, honestly. I really thought that what was driving the justices sort of throughout was this kind of what would it mean for our system of government, for individual states to kind of kick very important, you know, prominent, maybe not independent candidates off, because that does sometimes happen, but a major party candidate off their ballots. Would this mean that Colorado sets essentially the agenda for the rest of the nation or that other states will follow suit? Or a couple of the justices floated the possibility of retaliatory removals. Maybe red states try to keep Biden off their ballots. And that just seemed to suggest a state of chaos ensuing in presidential elections that the justices seemed very concerned about essentially setting in motion by ratifying what the Colorado court here did. Is there a case to be made that really Congress ought to decide this. There is an additional clause, clause uh, number five, which says that Congress shall uh, enforce this by appropriate legislation. You know, there is a case, and early on, so this amendment gets ratified in 1868, and in the first years following the ratification, there is some congressional action to actually implement the amendment. There's even, you know, a reference in an early case that maybe Congress has to pass legislation, although Trump's lawyers didn't rely solely on that early case. So there's an argument from history that Congress has done this before, and there's a pragmatic argument that, again, Congress regulates for the whole country and Congress should do it. But the question of whether the amendment requires congressional action as the only way to actually enforce its provisions, I think that's actually kind of a stretch, again, just from the text and the history mm. of the amendment, usually the things the justices think are most important. But again, they didn't seem guided by those here. Very briefly, uh, there are some analysts who uh, speculate that the court is going for a split decision here. They may rule for Trump in keeping him on the ballot, but then rule against Trump, who in a separate case is seeking absolute immunity from prosecution as a former president. What do you think about that? I think that's very likely in terms of how they'll come down uh, as a bottom line matter. The arguments for absolute president, presidential immunity, I think, are exceedingly weak, and the D.C. Circuit rejected them. Um, but timing matters a great deal here. So it only really matters if they rule against Trump in the immunity case, if they do it fast enough that a trial can really happen this spring well in advance of the presidential election. Kate Shaw, thanks for your insights. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
Thanks so much for having me. She is a professor at the Cary Law School at the University of Pennsylvania. Police say the stabbing of a Palestinian-American man in Austin, Texas this week meets the definition of a hate crime. It's the latest in a series of attacks that appear to target Palestinian-Americans as the war in Gaza continues to heighten tensions and safety fears for Arab and Jewish Americans alike. Luce Moreno Lozano of member station KUT in Austin reports. Fighting back tears, Nizar Doar shared the story of his son, 23-year-old Zachariah Doar, who was stabbed last Sunday night near the University of Texas campus in downtown Austin. Zachariah and his friends had just attended a rally calling for a ceasefire. After the rally, Nizar says he begged his son to come home with him to Dallas, but he and his friends wanted to take in Austin's food and nightlife. I drive hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, and I get a terrible call saying, Uncle, you have to turn back. Your son been stabbed. The first thing came to my mind is I'm going to lose my son. Zachariah and his friends were in their car at a stop sign when a man riding a bike yelled racial slurs and attacked them. The man, identified as 36-year-old Bert James Baker, tried to rip a free Palestine flag from their truck and then stabbed Zachariah in the chest. Baker was arrested and charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Austin police on Wednesday said it is recommending the attack be prosecuted as a hate crime. Whether to do that is now up to the Travis County District Attorney. This is the latest in a series of attacks against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab communities across the U.S. since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and subsequent war in Gaza. In November, three college students in Vermont were shot and seriously injured while taking an evening walk. In October, a six-year-old Muslim boy was fatally stabbed and his mother wounded by their landlord just outside of Chicago. Nazar Doar says his son is now out of the hospital and recovering at home. I think what happened is clear as the sun today. I really call for the law enforcement to do the right investigation and determine exactly what happened. All I want is justice for my son and justice for our people in Gaza. The Council on American-Islamic Relations says reports to them of anti-Muslim hate incidents are up nearly 180 percent over the last three months compared to the same period last year. The Anti-Defamation League says anti-Semitic incidents are up more than 300 percent. For NPR News, I'm Luz Morano Lozano in Austin, Texas. This is NPR News. Good morning. This is WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the presidential primaries now move to South Carolina, and we'll take a look at where things stand. It's 20 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. I'm On Point producer Claire Donnelly. When my mom was in college, she worked the dishroom shift at the school dining hall every Thursday night. Her job was to scrape people's half-eaten food off their dishes into the trash and then load them onto the conveyor belt of this huge industrial dishwasher. The dishroom was smelly, hot, and steamy, but it was also where in 1981 she met the love of her life, my dad. The two of them worked side by side in their hideous bright orange work smocks. They were constantly laughing and flirting. 
Sometimes when their shift was over, they'd sit out at the dining room tables until late talking. Eventually, after what my mom says felt like forever, my dad asked her out. They've now been married 40 years. Wherever you met the person you care about, send them Valentine's Day flowers and support WBUR at the same time. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. And choose your gift today because today is the last day to save 10% on Roses for Your Valentine that will also support the news here at WBUR. Winston Flowers, beautiful flowers, but again, 10% off today. So if you want to send two dozen long stem red roses and make a contribution of $225, today we'll be able to do that for you. But after today, that will cost $250. So call now, one 800 909 or WBUR.org. Thanks so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options, at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. In recent months, Massachusetts officials have blamed record immigration for straining the state's safety net. About half the people in the state-run family shelter system are new arrivals, and most of those families are from Haiti. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel traces the long and complex path that many are taking to Massachusetts. At a church in Milton, about 100 Haitian congregants gather. Most are new to Massachusetts and staying in the state's family shelter system. Their prayers turn to those still in Haiti. Your people cannot gather today. They've been chasing out of their homes, displaced from their neighborhoods, from their families. We pray. Reverend De Fleur Florissa says Haitians have been chased from their homes and can't gather in church. He says the country's long known hard times, from devastating hurricanes and earthquakes to the assassination of the president. We have seen lately the uh, infestation of uh, gang activities in Haiti. So all those factors contribute uh, to the displacement of those families to here. One of the congregants at this church is Jeannot Bocage. He says it was gang violence that drove him to leave. But that was more than six years ago. Like most Haitians coming to Massachusetts, this is his second migration. He first fled to Chile, where he worked on a farm. He says in Chile, the work was normal and things were good. Many Haitians went to either Chile or Brazil, drawn by stable economies and visas that weren't too hard to get. Plus, back then, Brazil was gearing up for the World Cup and jobs were plentiful. 
But things changed. Economies slowed, the World Cup passed, and there was more competition for jobs. Bocage says new immigrants arrived from other Latin American countries, and Haitians started to experience what he calls racism. It could have been the color of their skin or because Spanish was their second language. Whatever the reason, Bocage says it was hard to find work. Research confirms this experience, and Will Freeman of the Council on Foreign Relations says at the same time, the path north seemed less daunting, even the notorious jungle passage called the Darien Gap. It's still, of course, an extremely dangerous route. But now when you cross that area, I mean, there's like a clear-cut path through the jungle. There are places to buy food and migrant guides like along the way. Freeman says there's also a sense of urgency. Many people worry that political debate over immigration could make it harder to get into the U.S. I think there's a widespread perception that now's the time. Haitian families and many others are leaving South America. Most enter the U.S. in places like Texas. And while some come straight to Massachusetts, many try to settle in another state first. Gerald Gabot runs the Immigrant Family Services Institute in Boston. We now are seeing like a really influx of people coming from Florida, from Georgia, places where the anti-immigrant sentiment is very, very high. She points to a law in Florida that took effect last summer, making it challenging for migrants to work, get IDs, and even requiring hospital staff to ask about a patient's immigration status. They talk about even pregnant women who cannot access care, who cannot even deliver babies. Sometimes I feel like there should have been like a national outrage about what Florida is doing, and you feel that everyone is quiet. And to me, it is inhuman. It's hard to know just how many Haitian families have come to Massachusetts in recent years because the state doesn't keep that data. But Gabo estimates her organization has served 14,000 new Haitian immigrants in the past two years. She says part of the draw to Massachusetts is there's already a vibrant Haitian community sharing updates with new arrivals. They are connected to social media platforms. But, oh, where are you now? We're here. Is it okay? Can you find a job? Can you find a place to stay? In recent months, with winter weather and a wait list for the family shelter system, the number of new arrivals has slowed somewhat. But it has not stopped. Informal networks continue to help people find their way. At the church in Milton, Jeannot Bocage says he arrived in the U.S. knowing nobody. Bon, finalement... He says people told him if he went to Boston, he'd find people able to care for him. A pastor paid for plane tickets for Bocage, his wife, and their daughter. And he adds his family was lucky. They arrived before the Massachusetts shelter system hit capacity. He says they're grateful for a room in the shelter, but they're still struggling. Bocage says the food in the shelter is unfamiliar and not something they eat. Each week, his family looks forward to church, where they pray that life in Massachusetts improves. For there's a friend in Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your life is broken, let lift your head and say, I know that I 
can make it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Winston Flowers and support for WBUR, the perfect gift for Valentine's Day. Order by midnight tonight to save 10% at WBUR.org. That's right. Valentine's Day, less than a week away. So send beautiful Winston Flowers to the person you're remembering this Valentine's Day and help support the news here at WBUR. Today's the last day to save 10% on the flowers for your Valentine. You need to order by midnight tonight. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thanks so much. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years, part-time, for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead as Conductor Laureate February 23rd and 25th at Symphony Hall. Visit HandelandHaydn.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Justice Department Special Counsel Robert Herb says President Biden will not face criminal charges for his handling of classified documents found at his home in Delaware and a think tank office in Washington, D.C. I was pleased to see he reached a firm conclusion that no charges should be brought against me in this case. That's the president speaking yesterday after details of the 300-plus page report were released. After investigating for more than a year, her concluded there was evidence Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after he left the vice presidency, but her declined criminal charges saying they weren't warranted. Biden pushed back on her describing the president, now 81 years old, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Donald Trump is the winner of yesterday's Republican caucus in Nevada, as well as GOP caucuses in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And it looks like we have the Republican nomination pretty much locked. Trump was speaking in a recorded message to supporters. The former president picked up 26 delegates in Nevada and four delegates in the Virgin Islands. Trump's latest wins follow his Republican victories in the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. The next major GOP contest is in South Carolina, February 24th. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Part of Morrissey Boulevard is closed today because of expected flooding. High tides through this weekend are expected to cause minor coastal flooding, and state officials say expect road closures between Freeport Street and Cooley Boulevard through Monday. A coalition of providers and people with disabilities is speaking out against proposed budget cuts to MassHealth's personal care attendant program. The cuts are part of Governor Maura Healey's budget proposal. Advocates estimate that would mean 6,000 people would no longer receive home care services from the program. Matt Pellegrino, the executive director of Northeast Independent Living in Lawrence, says he's surprised by the cuts. You know, these are people who have complex care needs. You know, persons um, that need help with bathing, dressing, toileting, Um, Why would this be the area you look for to, to, to save money? 
Healy says she needs to find a balanced, responsible budget to account for the state's tightening fiscal climate. Investigators are asking for help solving a decades-old case involving a missing Massachusetts woman. Today marks 20 years since Bora Murray of Hanson disappeared in New Hampshire. Investigators say she was involved in a single-car crash, which was seen by a passerby, but when police arrived... Murray was gone. The New Hampshire Attorney General is sharing an FBI projection of what she might look like today. Miles Madison is chief of the Criminal Justice Bureau for the New Hampshire AG, and he says he hopes someone recognizes the photo. This is a uh, suspicious missing persons case, and so that is one of the efforts with the release of an age progression photograph is to try to provide current information that may best shape if someone has information that they can bring to the investigation. Murray was a student at UMass Amherst at the time of her disappearance. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium. Guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com The Bruins are celebrating a big win against Vancouver. They beat the Canucks at the Garden last night 4-0. to Celtics are home tonight to take on the Washington Wizards. Should be partly cloudy today. Temperatures getting into the upper 40s, though. Tonight, more clouds with lows in the 30s. Tomorrow, fog in the morning, cloudy skies in the afternoon. We could see a shower or two tomorrow afternoon. Temperatures getting into the mid-50s tomorrow. And for Sunday, sunshine with highs around 50 degrees. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faudel. Nevada's presidential primaries and caucuses ended last night with a big win for Donald Trump. Given his campaign's influence on the state Republican Party's caucuses, the victory came as no surprise. And with the counting nearly done, Trump had 25 of the state's 26 delegates. Joining us now is NPR's Ashley Lopez, who's been in Las Vegas covering all of this week's contests. Hey, Ashley. Hey there. So since Trump was the only major presidential candidate competing in the caucuses, he was obviously going Mm -hmm. to win. So what should we take away from this? This is like another display of just how uncompetitive this presidential primary really is right now. Trump has now won contests in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Plus, I should say the Virgin Islands, he's won four delegates there because they also had an election yesterday that Trump won. Earlier in the week, the last major candidate running against him, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, was on on Nevada's state-run primary ballot, and she lost to the none-of-the-above option on the ballot. In fact, this is something that Trump poked fun of during his victory event in Las Vegas last night. None of the above. So I'd like to congratulate none of the above. I was one of those none of ever 
aboves. I was one of them. No, I saw, I watched that last night and they won by 44 points, none of the above. Yeah, I actually talked to some Republicans who showed up to vote in the primary on Tuesday, you know, expecting to vote for Trump. And they told me they voted for that none of these candidates options. I think everything that happened in Nevada was a pretty clear display of just how like disinterested many Republican voters are in an alternative to Trump at this point. Okay, so as you mentioned, there are two Republican presidential contests in Nevada this week, which seems confusing. What did voters make of that? Yeah, so there were two GOP contests because the state's Republican Party didn't like some recent changes made to Nevada's election laws. So they decided to hold a caucus of their own so they could Mm. just have more control of the process. I spent some time outside a caucus site at a community center near downtown Las Vegas. And there really weren't a lot of people who attended the caucus, but of the folks I talked to, they were all Trump supporters. Many told me they were pretty plugged in to what was going on and they knew that they wanted to vote for Trump. They had to vote on Thursday and not earlier in the week. But they did say they did find that whole thing like just really confusing. One woman I talked to, Rita Fruit, said she was excited to vote for Trump in the caucus, but it just like was not easy for her to figure out how to do that. You know, I had to look it up and do my research because there wasn't, I didn't get anything in the mail or notification. So... State election officials told me that whenever voters had any questions about the caucus, they really couldn't answer them. All they could really do is direct them to the party's website. But ultimately, every Trump supporter I talked to said they didn't mind having to figure this all out in order to vote for him. They were just really excited to vote for Trump. There are other primaries ahead. What do we expect next? Yeah, well, there are two more Republican primaries just this month, right? There is the closely watched primary election in South Carolina, which is Nikki Haley's home state. Trump obviously has a lot of momentum now coming into this contest, but he's also had a sizable lead in the state for a while now. Even though Haley was elected governor of the state a few years ago, she just hasn't been able to close in on Trump there. And while her campaign mostly blew off Nevada, they have really set their sights on South Carolina. So in many ways, a loss for Haley in South Carolina would be a much bigger blow. And the Republican primary there is coming up on February 24th. Michigan's primary election follows on the 27th, and Republicans there also plan to hold a caucus on March 2nd, through which most of the party's delegates will be awarded. And Trump also has a big lead in the polls there, too. That's NPR's Ashley Lopez. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Some other news now. A publisher retracted a scientific paper analyzing the safety of the abortion pill mefepristone. The research had been used in a court case about access to medication abortion. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. The study that was retracted used Medicaid claims data to track ER visits by patients in the month after having an abortion. It found a much higher rate of complications than other similar studies. Last year, a pharmaceutical sciences professor flagged what he saw as problems with the research. Sage, the publisher, launched an investigation. On Monday, Sage retracted the study. In a statement, it said new reviewers found the study lacked scientific rigor that invalidated the conclusions. It also retracted two other studies by the same authors. In an email to NPR, a spokesperson for Sage wrote that the process leading to the retractions was, quote, thorough, fair, and careful. The lead author, James Studnicki, works for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, the research arm of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Sage is targeting us because we have been successful. That's from a video posted online this week. He says the retractions have nothing to do with science and are a, quote, political assassination of science. We have become visible. People are quoting us. And for that reason, we are dangerous. 
And for that reason, they want to cancel our work. In an email to NPR, a spokesperson for the Charlotte Lozier Institute said that they, quote, will be taking appropriate legal action. In the meantime, the big question is, what does this all mean for the legal case that could determine the fate of medication abortion? Mifepristone has been approved for more than 20 years and is used in more than half of abortions nationally. The Food and Drug Administration stands by its research that finds adverse events from Mifepristone are extremely rare. In 2022, anti-abortion rights groups, including a group of doctors, sued the FDA. They argue Mifepristone is not safe and should be pulled from the market. In a ruling last spring, federal judge Matthew Kaczmarek cited the now-retracted study three times. Kaczmarek is a Trump appointee who was a vocal abortion opponent before he became a judge. He ruled against the FDA, though his ruling is now on hold while the case goes to the Supreme Court. I don't think he would view the retraction as delegitimizing the research. That's Mary Ziegler, an expert in the legal history of abortion at UC Davis. There's been so much polarization about like what the reality of abortion is on the right that, you know, I, I'm not sure how much a retraction would even affect his reasoning. Ziegler also doubts the retractions will alter much with the Supreme Court case, given its conservative majority. The decision that overturned Roe v. Wade gives a sense of how this might go, she says. The majority relied pretty much exclusively on scholars with, you know, some ties to pro-life activism and didn't really cite anybody else. In other words, we've already seen when it comes to abortion that the court has, you know, a propensity to look at the views of experts that support the results it wants. Oral arguments at the Supreme Court are scheduled for March 26, with a decision expected by summer. Mifepristone remains available while the legal process continues. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, a special counsel report says President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified information as a private citizen after his vice presidency, but the Justice Department is not pursuing charges. It's 743. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. I'm Hannah Ali, associate producer for newsletters here at WBUR. When I first moved into my apartment, I bought a set of green dish towels with quirky designs for my kitchen. Green is my color and my friends know this, But I couldn't have predicted that one of them, who hadn't even visited my apartment, would send me the exact same dish towels with a note that said, saw these and thought of you. I always laugh whenever I see the second set of towels, but the coincidence and the fact that she thought of me warms my heart too. Being loved is being known for who you are, and it's my friends who know me best. If you know someone who would appreciate a special gift this Valentine's Day, Send them Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll also be supporting all of the great stuff you get from us. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. 
And today is the last day to get 10% off your perfect Valentine's Day gift. Beautiful Winston flowers sent to your Valentine that also help pay for the news here on WBUR, help pay for independent journalism that you know you can count on. If you want to send a dozen, say, long stem red roses, and we have four different uh, options here, but a dozen long stem red roses today is $135. After today, $150. Here's the number to call. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series, Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at Fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, is preparing a new and easier application process for disaster victims. The plan is to simplify a complicated system that prevents people from getting help. Kentucky Public Radio's Justin Hicks reports. Wesley Bryant lives in the close-knit Appalachian town of Jenkins, Kentucky. The 2022 floods that wrecked his home and forced him to flee with his family also washed away the bridge that connected their home to the main road. So we have to hike down a steep, muddy path through the woods to get to his house. Inside, the air is thick and musty. In several areas, the ceiling has thick black mold and holes of insulation dangling out. But everything else is pretty much how they left it when they fled. Toys on the floor and all. It breaks my soul, man. It, it hurts. It's home for me. And to not know for everyone to get back here. FEMA gave Bryant's family a trailer to live in for a while while they applied for aid. And they gave him some money for the house. But he's still fighting to get assistance to replace everything inside. We've, we've been, it's kind of like we're lost in the shuffle. Brian says he'll keep appealing until he gets money he believes he's eligible for. But for future disaster survivors, getting aid might be a little easier. FEMA announced they're going to take steps to simplify their application process. For Whitney Bailey, that change can't come soon enough. It's insane. It's insane. Bailey is with a pro bono law group in Kentucky called Apple Red. She's been helping dozens of clients navigate the FEMA application process, which often requires lots of appeals and paperwork. She shows me a folder so thick she can barely hold it in one hand. This is one lady's, that's her entire FEMA case file. <laughs> one coming change Bailey says she's most excited about removing a confusing requirement, where in many cases, disaster victims had to first apply for a small business administration loan, regardless of whether or not they have a business. That loan had to get denied before they could get FEMA aid. That's going to be huge. I have had so many clients get held up on the FEMA end because they need to go to SBA. You shouldn't have to go to a second agency. And there are about a dozen more changes, too like simpler applications, expanding the type of repairs allowed, and more flexibility for survivors to find an immediate place to live. Annie Bink heads up FEMA's Disaster Response and Recovery Office. 
She says some of the changes came after working with the 2022 flood victims in eastern Kentucky. For example, the new immediate cash assistance. Some of the things we talked about during that disaster that we have adjusted, it's now automatic through the new rule. So $750 can get in the pocket of a survivor sooner and can help communities give them that initial hope. While Kentucky flood victims may have inspired some of these changes, they won't necessarily benefit from them. FEMA says the new rules should take effect for new disasters starting March 22nd. For NPR News, I'm Justin Hicks. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we remember world-renowned conductor Seiji Ozawa. And in about a half hour on our show, Brazil's former president has been implicated in an investigation involving an attempted coup, and he's been asked to hand in his passport. It's 10 minutes before 8. Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. I wanted to write something for our Valentine's Day fundraiser, and there's a poem that I love that speaks to the importance of human connection in a world where that's so fleeting and fragile. The poem is called Small Kindnesses by Danusha Lamaris. She writes, I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by, or how strangers still say, bless you, when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we're saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now so far from tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. Small kindnesses, isn't that a lovely poem? It is a small kindness to send someone you love flowers today, and it will mean a lot to us too. Just go to WBUR.org and hit the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. And when you do order your Valentine's Day gift through WBUR and donate, you can save 10% on your gift today and today only. It's the last day for that 10% discount. Winston Flowers will be delivered to your Valentine, and you'll be helping to support journalism that helps keep your community informed. 10% off, ends at midnight tonight. Here's a number to call. It's 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Uncommon Feasts. 
offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, gather around, let's feast, and Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Seiji Ozawa, the maestro who led the Boston Symphony Orchestra longer than any other music director, has died. Ozawa's management said he died of heart failure at his home in Tokyo. He was 88 years old. WBUR's Andrea Shea remembers Ozawa, who was both a celebrated and controversial figure. When Seiji Ozawa arrived to lead the BSO in 1973, he was different from the get-go. Longtime classical critic Ellen Pfeiffer remembers how the sprightly 38-year-old conductor liked to wear a tunic at the podium, not a tux. He had a moppish head of hair. And hanging around his neck? Love beads. (laughs) He was very much a product of that era. Ozawa stood out in other ways, too. His appointment was one of her first assignments. I was asked to call some of the Boston Symphony subscribers at that time and ask them what they thought about a Japanese conductor being appointed music director. This was, at the time, quite exotic. Ozawa's predecessors were older and had names like Leinsdorf, Steinberg, Munch, Kusevitsky. Pfeiffer says choosing a 30-something Asian was a bold move for the BSO. They went out on a limb. Ozawa's rise paved the way for other Asian musicians to break into a genre dominated for centuries by white men. This cultural sea change wasn't lost on the maestro either, as he told NPR in 2002. Since I'm kind of pioneer, I must do my best before I die. So people younger than me think, oh, that is possible. I think possible. I hope it's possible. In Japan, Seiji Ozawa's father was a country dentist who, as the story goes, pulled a piano 25 miles in a wagon so his son would have an instrument to play. But as a teenager, Ozawa sprained a finger playing rugby and turned to conducting. In the 50s, he won an international competition, which caught the attention of then-BSO music director Charles Munch. Later, Leonard Bernstein took notice and gave Ozawa a job at the New York Philharmonic. After stints in Japan, Toronto, and San Francisco, he won the position of music director for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and there he stayed for 29 years. As a conductor, Ozawa exhibited a few interesting quirks. He could be heard grunting at the podium. He could lead massive symphonies from memory. He didn't use a baton, and he moved on stage. What a dancer he was. That's BSO trombonist Norman Bolter. He played just feet away from Ozawa from 1975 to 2002, nearly the entire duration of Ozawa's tenure with the orchestra. But not only just a dancer getting up there and doing his own jig, his clarity in conducting was extraordinary, but it just wasn't this persnickety, trying to be clean detailed. It had a fluidity. It had a ballet aspect to it. 
and it was alive. Ozawa hired Bolter when Bolter was only 20 years old, and for that, Bolter says he will always be grateful. His feelings for Ozawa are personal. He'll never forget their conversations and the maestro's intensity. His eyes could penetrate right through you. You could feel him assessing you. But Ozawa was also fun. In 1988, he led the all-animal orchestra on Sesame Street. Ozawa's grasp on certain real composers was profound, according to Bolter. Seiji did Bartok, in my mind, like nobody did. I mean, he just had this unbridled fervor that would go over him with Bartok and certain other pieces. He let the orchestra play. He wasn't a control freak in that way. But in other ways, it appears he was. Ozawa courted controversies during his time at the BSO, perhaps most notably in the 90s at the Tanglewood Music Center in the Berkshires. A string of controversial hires and fires enraged longtime BSO administrators and musicians, leading to resignations, bad press, and a precipitous drop in morale. His legacy of handling personnel issues, I don't think, was always um, ideal. Even so, critic Ellen Pfeiffer says Ozawa changed the face of the orchestra and was something of a musical ambassador. He took the BSO to China, making it the first U.S. cultural organization to do so after relations with the country were normalized. And that's Seiji. He has the responsibility for that. Seiji Ozawa left the BSO in 2002 to lead the Vienna State Opera, but fans could still see the maestro in Boston, not at the podium, but at Fenway Park, egging on his favorite baseball team. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Just a little reminder now before we go back to the news that we can help you with your Valentine's Day gift here at WBUR. We can send beautiful Winston flowers delivered to your Valentine. And by purchasing your Valentine's Day gift through WBUR, you're helping support the journalism that keeps you and your community informed. Today's the last day to save 10% on your Winston flowers for your Valentine's Day gift. So if you wanted to send a dozen long red roses. You could do that for $135 today. After today, it's $150. So order your flowers through us. Help us and we'll help you. Here's the number to call. It's 1-800-909-9287. You can also go to WBUR.org. Thank you.
WBUR supporters include Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden won't face charges for mishandling some classified documents. But the U.S. special counsel investigating him criticized Biden's mental acuity in his final report. NPR's Asma Khalid reports that Biden held a press conference last night to try to contradict that impression. The report describes Biden as a, quote, sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. The president responded. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. Biden was defensive as reporters asked him blunt questions like, is your memory getting worse? He's 81 and he often mixes up people and names. It even happened last night when he was responding to a question about Israel and Gaza. Polls have repeatedly shown many voters are concerned about the president's age. Biden's likely opponent in the presidential election is Donald Trump, who at 77 also faces questions about his mental sharpness. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments yesterday about whether former President Donald Trump should be excluded from Colorado's primary ballot. The Colorado State Supreme Court says he should be disqualified because his actions around January 6th amount to insurrection. Several U.S. justices, both liberal and conservative, questioned whether that should happen. NPR's Kerry Johnson says some of the justices are worried about the repercussions of Colorado's potential action. The chief justice brought up the idea of other states engaging in some tit-for-tat, maybe blocking the Democratic frontrunner from the ballot by arguing he engaged in an insurrection. But the lawyer for Colorado voters said that shouldn't be a worry. This part of the Constitution, he said, has been dormant for 150 years because nothing like January 6th has happened. NPR's Kerry Johnson reporting. Russian President Vladimir Putin says Moscow is open to negotiations that could see the release of jailed Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. Putin's comments came in a lengthy interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. Tucker Carlson's two-hour interview with Putin saw the Russian leader make familiar false justifications for his invasion of Ukraine, yet it also provided Putin's most extensive comments to date on the arrest of Wall Street Journal correspondent Evan Gershkovich. When asked by Carlson if he would free Gershkovich as a gesture of his decency, Putin demurred, noting negotiations with the U.S. were ongoing. He then suggested Moscow could be open to a trade that included a suspected Russian government assassin currently serving a life sentence for murder in Germany. Putin also insisted Gershkovich had been caught red-handed gathering intelligence for the U.S. Secret Services. Gershkovich, the journal, and the U.S. government all vehemently reject that charge. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The head of the Massachusetts Medical Society is pleading with parents to get their kids vaccinated against measles. The society president, Barbara Spivak, says there are outbreaks in Europe and six states. She points out measles highly contagious and she's concerned about children not being protected. We've seen a real drop in vaccination rate in kids since the pandemic. So the young kids um, who would have been vaccinated in the first year or so of their lives, um, many of them have not been successfully vaccinated. She says the measles vaccine also protects against mumps and rubella. Contract talks between Newton teachers and school officials are officially over. The school committee formally voted to approve a new contract with the teachers union last night. The four-year deal includes pay raises for teachers and social workers in some school buildings. The vote follows a two-week strike by teachers. A legislative committee is giving itself more time to consider a bill that would amend what's known as the charitable immunity law. The law limits damages on some lawsuits against nonprofits. Nancy Cohen reports the bill would change the law so it would not apply to cases alleging child abuse. The charitable immunity law generally caps damages against nonprofits at $20,000. That's made it difficult for people who allege sexual or physical abuse at a diocese, Boy Scouts, or any nonprofit to get a lawyer. Attorney Kim Doherty says amending the law would help bring justice to survivors. So that they can actually get meaningful reparations. It's the type of misconduct that has life-altering effects on people. The law was designed to make sure that funds donated to a charitable group are spent on charitable work. The Massachusetts Nonprofit Network says the law balances a nonprofit's ability to operate with an ability for plaintiffs to be compensated. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Cannabis prices in Massachusetts are down to a new low after a record sales year. Massachusetts saw more than $1.5 billion in sales in 2023. On average, prices dropped by more than half. State regulators tell MassLive that conditions are positive for the cannabis industry. It's six minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. The Bruins had no trouble. During last night's game in Vancouver, they beat the Canucks 4-0. to Celtics are looking for their third straight win when they get ready to take on the Washington Wizards at home. Tonight's game tips off at 7.30. Should be mostly cloudy today with temperatures in the 40s. Some clouds tonight with lows in the 30s. Tomorrow, a chance of showers in the afternoon, highs in the 50s, and sunshine on Sunday with temperatures near 50 degrees. 33 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We now know the findings of a special counsel who investigated President Biden's retention of classified documents. His report finds, quote, evidence that Biden, quote, willfully retained the classified material from his vice presidency. Yet the same report repeatedly gives reasons that the evidence falls short and would not be likely to persuade a jury, which is why Robert Hur declined to prosecute. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas has been reading. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. What do you find in these hundreds of pages? Well, look, this this is a long report, uh, but it does focus on a, on a couple of sets of classified materials that FBI agents found uh, in their searches of Biden's homes and office. Uh, one are documents related to military and foreign policy in Afghanistan during the Obama administration. Uh, and the other are handwritten notes that date to Biden's time as vice president. Biden jotted down notes in these things during intelligence briefings with President Obama and in White House Situation Room meetings, some of this material is classified. Uh, and it's some of that material that Hur says that Biden shared on at least three occasions, the report says, uh, with the ghostwriter that he was working with. Hmm. But as you said, there are no charges here. The report says ultimately the evidence doesn't support bringing charges. It doesn't establish Biden's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Hur says in the report that it would be hard to prove that Biden willfully intended to break the law. Uh, and it also describes him as a, quote, sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory uh, and says it would be hard to convince a jury to convict him. And unsurprisingly, Republicans have jumped on that last part, describing Biden as an old man with memory problems. How is the president responding to that? Well, look, uh, legally, this report is good news for Biden in the sense that there are no charges, but that doesn't mean that it can't still create political problems for him. And the parts of Hur's report that raise questions about his age and mental acuity are, are certainly a case in point. There's even a line in there uh, that in his interviews with investigators, Biden didn't remember the year his son Bo died. Biden talked to reporters last night and he took that remark head on. Let's take a listen. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, wasn't any of their damn business. You can hear in that comment there how upset Biden was. And he said there's there's no reason for what he called such extraneous stuff to be in the report. And he said the bottom line here is that there are no charges and this investigation is now closed. Um, former President Trump is facing criminal charges for the way that he handled classified documents and, of course, is claiming now that he is being treated differently. What is the response to that? Well, look, the, the Justice Department rejects any allegation that there's a two-tier justice system in this country. It's worth pointing out that Robert Hur is a Republican. Before he was appointed special counsel, he served as a U.S. attorney during the Trump administration. Now, yes, the, you have a Biden case, you have a Trump case, but there are significant differences between those two cases. Hur even points them out in his report. Trump was provided multiple opportunities to return the classified documents that were uh, found at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, according to the indictment, Trump refused to do so uh, and even actively sought to obstruct investigators by trying to get others to destroy evidence and then lie about it to investigators. Biden, on the other hand, he voluntarily turned over classified documents to the National Archives and Justice Department after they were found. He then voluntarily agreed to FBI searches of his homes. He sat down for an interview with Hur's team. So as Hur says, there are significant distinctions uh, between these two cases. In fact, the special prosecutor says at one point, the fact that Biden agreed voluntarily to searches of his home implies that perhaps he did not realize that classified documents were there. Ryan, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas. 
Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine is about to enter its third year. It's a war of attrition. Ukrainian troops are running out of ammunition, and the country is looking to its allies for help. That help from the U.S. is stalled. Although the Senate sent a message of support to Ukraine yesterday, advancing a bill that would provide $60 billion in aid for Kyiv. Leaders in the European Union will be watching closely as American lawmakers in the House debate the legislation, which also includes military aid for Israel and Taiwan, as well as humanitarian aid for Gaza. To get the European Union perspective, I'm joined by Stefano Sanino. He's Secretary General of the EU's European External Action Service and Italy's former ambassador to Spain. Good morning, Ambassador. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. I want to start with the more than $50 billion uh, appropriation from Europe to Ukraine. It sounds like a lot, but Johan van Overtveld, the chair of the European Parliament's Budgets Committee, says it won't be sufficient. Do you agree with that assessment, and will Europe send more money to Ukraine? Well, first of all, this 50 billion euros is on the top of a a previous assistance, which is bringing our overall assistance to more than 150 uh, billion dollars. So it's um, a substantial amount of money. The second thing is that uh, uh, we do hope and we're following very closely what is happening here in in Washington, that the United States will continue also supporting uh, um, uh, our effort, our global effort. I think that the reasons that uh, were behind our support to Ukraine are still there. We are trying to uh, counter the uh, aggression of a country against another country whose only fault was to uh, fight for its democracy and uh, for the possibility of a better future. The House here in the U.S. has yet to weigh in on this bill, but the Speaker, Mike Johnson, is signaling that it will face longer odds in his chamber. If the aid package fails and money from the U.S. doesn't come through, how does that affect Ukraine and the security of Europe? Well, for the moment, uh, uh, um, we still have to see which is the end of the story. So we still Mm -hmm. hope that uh, this is not going to be the case. But uh, as I said, the European Union has been uh, very steadfast in its support to uh, Ukraine. We believe that this is uh, what is at stake in the moment is not only uh, the uh, security and the freedom of Ukraine, but also the security and freedom of the whole of the European Union against an imperialistic uh, aggression that is coming from uh, uh, Russia's Putin. What would you say to lawmakers here in the U.S. who say they need to see more progress from Ukraine before they approve more aid? What's your message to them? Well, I think that the Ukrainians have done a, a, a titanic effort in order to uh, um, wage this war to, uh, against the country and the forces which were much uh, bigger than uh, their own forces. And that in the meantime, they have also gone through a very substantial reform and restructuring of the uh, country, of their uh, legal system, the fight against corruption. This is not the end of the story. There is still a lot of work that needs to be done. But they uh, have done a very important step in this direction. And I think that this was recognized by all the 27 member states of the European Union mm. when they decided to accept the uh, um, uh, or start negotiation of accession for Ukraine to the EU. The uh, bill that Europe, uh, the appropriation that Europe is now giving to Ukraine was slightly delayed. There is a, a much longer delay in aid from the U.S. What message, in your estimation, what, how does this impact Ukraine's war effort and what is the message it sent to Russia? 
I think that all in all, the message that we are sending, and I'm speaking here not only for the, uh, uh, for the European Union, but also for the US, I think that the message that we are sending is a message of uh, um, uh, support and of determination not to accept uh, this uh, unlawful and unjustified invasion. And it's a message that goes to the essence of what we have always fought for on the two sides of the Atlantic, that is to say, the freedom of, uh, uh, of our people and uh, their possibility to uh, uh, pursue their objectives of life. But the delay, does that send a different message? I, I don't think so. I mean, it's, we have all complex decision processes. I mean, uh, you have your complexity on this side of the Atlantic. We have our complexity on this side of the Atlantic. But then what matters, I think, is the result and the fact that for two years we have been close to the, uh, um, to the uh, uh, Ukrainians. We have been able to pass a number of sanctions package, mm -hmm. which is unprecedented. We have been able to support them financially, uh, economically and militarily. We'll have to leave it there. Stefano Sanino is Secretary General of the EU's European External Action Service. Thank you for your time. Thank you. People move to Los Angeles for the sun, supposedly. Now climate change is adding more storms into the weather mix, like the one that hit this week. KCRW's Kaylee Wells asked residents of one neighborhood if they want to stay or go. Chris Kelly has evacuated four times since he moved to rural Topanga in western L.A. County 15 years ago. He was up all Sunday night during the heavy rain and caught some of it on video. So at one point, I believe the canyon in both directions where I am was trapped. He built makeshift culverts to keep his business from flooding. With a shovel diverting the water coming from across the street to basically bypass my shop. Topanga is a neighborhood surrounded by mountains and trees, bisected by a winding canyon road. It's between a grid of middle-class suburbs and the ritzy city of Malibu. Its small-town vibe feels like a Hallmark movie, only with more surfers and less snow. It's also a risky place to live. The shorthand that people around there use is, it's the perilous paradise. When Abigail Aguirre moved to Topanga in 2017, the local emergency volunteer coalition sent her a disaster manual. When it's not being threatened by a mega fire or, um, you know, mudslides, it's just impossibly beautiful. The canyon is positioned such that a windy day during wildfire season could spell disaster in less than an hour. There hasn't been a major fire in 30 years, but there have been close calls. Aguirre says after five years, several power outages and one major fire evacuation, she sold the house and moved to northern New Mexico. Enough of that, and you're like, how much is the... Pluses of living in Topanga outweighing the anxiety, and is it still? Life in Topanga means neighborhood-wide evacuation drills and learning how to prepare your house for wildfire. Karen Dannenbaum has lived here since 1988. She says she's never seen weather this bad. I would say this current storm is absolutely the worst storm I've seen. Ten inches of rain in just two days. Dannenbaum's home insurance has increased fourfold, more than $6,000 in just the past few years. But she says she'll never leave. Looking out my window, I look at all these trees when I can sit outside and the birds are so loud sometimes. It's so beautiful and peaceful here. She and her neighbors, most days, enjoy some of the best nature California has to offer, all while being prepared for the worst. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. Thanks for being with us this morning here on WBUR. Coming up, the military shakeup in Ukraine.
It's 20 minutes past 8. WBUR supporters include Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston, and I have two kids. My second one is named Jude, named after the patron saint of lost causes. And when I delivered him, it was really a tricky birth, so there were a lot of people in the room for the delivery, which lasted a long time, and I was not particularly stoic. So by the time Jude came, I'm exhausted, everyone in the room is exhausted, the baby comes out, and all of a sudden the whole room breaks into na, 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 and they're all singing the song Hey Jude, and I hear the little baby crying in the background under the song, and my husband takes him in his arms, and he walks over to me, and I'm laying there exhausted, the baby's crying, and my husband strokes his head and says, oh sweet. He's perfect. This Valentine's Day, send the perfect person in your life Winston Flowers and send them through WBUR to fuel powerful storytelling. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. And to order your flowers uh, at a discount, today is the last day to do that. We're offering 10% off if you order your flowers from Winston Flowers that help pay for journalism here at WBUR if you order by midnight tonight. So if you wanted to send, say, two dozen long stem red roses, they're $225 today. They'll be $250 after today. So call now, get beautiful Winston Flowers sent to your Valentine and help support journalism you can count on. Here's the number. It's one 800 909 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from the station and from JITASA, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. JITASA is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at JITASA.com. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We now have the story of a former president who made false claims of a stolen election. Nope, we're not talking about Donald Trump, but he was friends with him. Ex-Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is facing mounting evidence that points to him participating in efforts to overturn the results of an election that ultimately unseated him. Yesterday, federal police showed up at his residence and forced him to hand over his passport. Hmm. NPR South America correspondent Kerry Kahn is in Rio de Janeiro. Hi there, Kerry. Hi, good morning. What is the new evidence? Well, first, Bolsonaro was not arrested yesterday. Several of his close aides were. And the federal police then unveiled its case of Bolsonaro's alleged participation in an attempted coup in this 130-page detailed document, which has a lot of stunning evidence, Steve, much that we have not heard before. The investigation names dozens of people who worked with Bolsonaro allegedly well before he lost his re-election bid back in 2022. They include military personnel, his former defense minister, his 
his former justice minister and a national security advisor. And the level at which Bolsonaro orchestrated much of police says was a vast conspiracy to overturn the election results is new, too. At one point, police say Bolsonaro edited a document that outlined how the coup would unfold, including which leaders in the government would be arrested and who would not. And that edit included the arrest of a justice of the Supreme Court. Wow. Wow. So these things didn't necessarily happen, but he's editing a document that is the plan. Can you now fit this into the context of what we already knew about his failed effort to overturn his defeat in 2022. Sure. He claimed it was voter fraud and that Brazil's all-electronic voter system was defective. His supporters spent months camping out in front of military barracks, hoping the army would intervene and overturn the results of the election. When that didn't happen, the supporters ransacked the Capitol on January 8th of last year. Bolsonaro has denied he had anything to do with that attack. Unlike Trump, who was a the two were close allies when they were both in office. Bolsonaro has already been barred from running for office until 2030 by hmm. electoral authorities. And like Trump, Bolsonaro is also facing many more cases that could land him in jail. How is he responding to this latest police raid that grabs his passport? Bolsonaro, as always, denied any wrongdoing and says he's being politically persecuted. The current president, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, who Bolsonaro lost to, also spoke out. He said he hopes the investigation against Bolsonaro is professional and unbiased. But he did add he didn't think the coup attempt could have happened without Bolsonaro. I want to play you a bit of a conversation I had with Brazilian political scientist Guilherme Casarroyes. It was interesting. He was hopeful, despite learning how the former right-wing leader had tried to undermine Brazil's democratic consensus. And, you know, that is quite serious in this country with a history of military dictatorships. Even though there were very powerful people, people in, in office, in power, plotting against democracy, somehow democratic institutions have worked and have been able to save democracy from a complete meltdown. He says Brazilians should celebrate that. Okay, where's the investigation go next? Well, there's a lot of evidence to go over from yesterday's police action and possibly new plea agreements from aides of Bolsonaro that were arrested yesterday, and all of that could prove very problematic for Bolsonaro. Okay, and Pierce Carey Khan, thanks so much. You're welcome. Time now for StoryCorps. If you buy flowers in St. Louis this Valentine's Day, they might come from the flower farm run by Miranda Dushak and Mima Davis. They've been growing flowers together for more than a decade. And while their work has played a part in many romances, Miranda and Mima talked about their own love story as the first lesbian couple married in Missouri. We met at work, right, at our day job. And then we decided to farm together, fell in love, got married at a spiritual ceremony where we jumped the broom because we couldn't legally be married. And then the second wedding was in 2014 right? to be legally married. Do you remember this when we had August? Do you remember how I pushed August out? Okay. What do you mean, do I remember that? Yeah. But they didn't know how to fill out the birth certificate. I do paper. remember that. So I was making a fact sheet to leave at the nurse's station about <laughs> how to register um, it's okay. It's okay. You can have some tears. I just felt like we were total freaks, man. We weren't freaks. We were just first. We were just first. And it was really embarrassing for me that we fought so hard to get married and then we got divorced. But, you know, that was part of the rights that we fought for. I know. I was... <laughs> I, I would say that to people, you know. It, and that's all part of the package, right? 
You get to be married and then you get to be divorced. I mean, right. I was like, just like straight people. I can like get divorced. People, I can right. get divorced. It didn't necessarily pan out the way we thought it would be. But we're still in it. We're still farming partners. We're raising a beautiful son. These are gorgeous flowers sitting in front of us. And Mima Davis, I'm going to say right now, I still really love you and of care course, about you. Of course, I love you and care about you too. I mean, that was never in question for me. We are both really in our hearts and souls and deep down totally committed to each other. And that's why we work through all the real stuff. And I see that as the win. You look like a flower. Ex-wives and business partners Miranda Dushak and Mima Davis in St. Louis. Their StoryCorps interview has been archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance. Dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, the financial struggles of Stewart Healthcare are raising questions and calls for change in Massachusetts' oversight of hospitals. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting John Proctor is the Villain in this touching and bitingly funny new comedy. When a group of teens at a rural Georgia high school explore the crucible, they begin to discover their power and agency now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. This is our Valentine's Day fundraiser here at WBUR, and we have uh, really important news to tell you about today because a 10% discount on a Valentine's Day gift ends at midnight tonight. So if you'd like to get beautiful Winston flowers delivered to your Valentine in time for Valentine's Day next week, order them by midnight tonight and get 10% off. Of course, your gift helps pay for all the journalism that you expect from WBUR. Here's the number. It's 1-800-909-9287 or go to our website, WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden will not face criminal charges for his handling of classified documents found at his home in Delaware and an office he used in Washington, D.C., Justice Department Special Counsel Robert Hur says there was evidence Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after he left the vice presidency, but Hur decided criminal charges are not warranted. Biden pushed back on Hur describing the president, now 81, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York did as well. 
This is a Republican special counsel who completely went out of his way um, to editorialize, to include material in his report that is unnecessary and irrelevant to what he was tasked with doing. It's been six months since a wildfire swept across Maui, leaving 100 people dead and about 2,000 homes and businesses destroyed. Hawaii Governor Josh Green says money will soon be offered to the families of those killed by the flames. Individuals that were lost all had families, and we have put together $175 million if they choose. If they choose in a voluntary way to accept a settlement, uh, $1.5 million would go to each family. Thousands are still being housed in hotels in Maui. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Acclaimed Boston Symphony Orchestra conductor Seiji Ozawa has died. His managers say he died of heart failure at his Tokyo home. Ozawa joined the BSO in 1973, at a time when it was rare for an Asian musician to lead an American orchestra. Ozawa spoke with NPR in 2002, the year he left the BSO. Since I'm kind of pioneer, I must do my best before I die. So people younger than me think, oh, that is possible. I think possible. I hope it's possible. Ozawa led the orchestra for almost three decades. It remains the longest tenure in the group's history. Seiji Ozawa was 88 years old. State officials say Massachusetts has been successful in helping residents keep health insurance coverage after they were no longer eligible for Medicaid. Citing federal data, they say about 20 percent of all Americans who moved from Medicaid to a plan with state health insurance with a state health insurance exchange did so using the Mass Health Connector. After the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of people in Massachusetts were deemed no longer eligible for Medicaid. The state is investing six and a half million dollars to try to keep recently incarcerated young men from ending up back behind bars. The money is going to seven nonprofits. One of them is Roca Incorporated, headquartered in Chelsea. Roca's executive vice president Scott Scharfenberg says his group will partner with the Suffolk County Sheriff to help people return to the community after incarceration. You know, if there's employment lined up, if there's housing lined up, if there's a relationship lined up and someone they trust when they come up, you know, there's, there's better outcomes versus, you know, perhaps going back to the streets, going back to drugs, having no housing. Scharfenberg says more reentry programming will improve overall public safety. The time is 8.34. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. It was a shutout victory at the Garden for the Bruins last night. They easily beat the Vancouver Canucks 4-0. to Celtics are getting ready to face off against the Washington Wizards. Tonight's game at the Garden begins at 7.30. Should be mostly cloudy today. Temperatures getting into the upper 40s. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the 30s. Tomorrow, looks like we'll see partly cloudy skies, maybe showers in the afternoon, highs in the 50s, sunshine on Sunday, though, and temperatures Sunday up around 50 degrees. 33 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. 
Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. President Volodymyr Zelensky says he is sidelining his military commander as Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine approaches its third year. Yeah, Zelensky posted on X that the country's army needs a, quote, renewal, and that he asked his outgoing general to remain part of the team. Christopher Miller joins us next. He's a reporter for the Financial Times, based in Kiev, and author of the book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Mr. Miller, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. Okay, so the general on the way out is Valery Zaluzhny. He's very popular, so why get rid of him now? He was. Uh, you know, Ukraine's war effort right now is stalled and, and in a bit of trouble. The country's big counteroffensive last year failed to achieve its goals, is running low on ammunition, on troops. It's on the defensive, while Russia has seized the initiative on the battlefield and is on the attack. So Zelensky thinks it's time right now to reboot his army command and hopefully turn around Ukraine's fortunes um, to see some progress uh, this year. I, I'm trying to think this through, however. Um, if there's a shortage of ammunition, that's not necessarily the general's fault. You could say that it's the fault of the United States for not shipping enough, Ukraine's allies for not shipping enough. What would point a finger of blame at the general himself? Right. Valery uh, Zaluzhny, the now former top general, was in charge of the counteroffensive, and him and Zelensky were at odds at times about how to conduct that counteroffensive. Uh, the United States was advising Kiev and Ukraine on what to do. Um, Zaluzhny was listening to some of that, but also implementing some of his own experiences on the battlefield. President Zelensky is seen as having made some uh, political decisions about how things were to be done and having gone around Valery Zaluzhny to speak with his other commanders on the battlefield. Mm. So that's where some of the points of, of tension come in uh, between the two, uh, Zaluzhny and Zelensky. I'm also remembering, if I'm not mistaken, that Zelensky is an admirer of Abraham Lincoln, uh, the American president during the Civil War who changed generals again and again and again until he found somebody who could win. So the new guy is Alexander Skirsky. What do you know about him? Yeah, you know, Zelensky does like change. Um, he has changed over his government a few times, um, even before the full-scale invasion. So he's choosing Oleksandr Sirsky now. Sirsky is seen as a close ally of Zelensky. The president believes he can trust him to carry out his orders. It's true that he's an experienced career commander who has been involved in many battles before, including in Russia's uh, first invasion in 2014. But he's deeply unpopular with the rank-and-file troops who call him the butcher because mm. they say he's kept brigades too long in battles where they should have been pulled out costing valuable lives and ammunition. The best example of that was the Battle of Bakhmut uh, that saw Russia destroy the city before capturing it last year. Personnel aside, is it clear that the Ukrainian government has a strategy that they think can work to win the war given the various limitations of ammunition and everything else that they face? It's working on a, a clear and consistent strategy. At the moment, it is taking what uh, Sirsky is calling an active defense approach. So that is actually similar to what Russia did last year in digging in deeper, fortifying its frontline positions, rebuilding its, its uh, military and its brigades. Uh, Ukraine is hoping that it can train some new troops this year, um, again, fortify its positions, and essentially put itself in a stronger position than it is now to go on the counteroffensive either later this year or in 2025. So a defensive phase now, possibly offensive in the future. Mr. Miller, thanks so much. Thank you. That's Christopher Miller of the Financial Times.
Congress has tried but failed to overhaul the country's immigration system for decades. This week, the latest attempt, a bill focused on border security, also fell through. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben checked in with voters about that and found that they're unhappy, to say the least. I asked Steve Shoemaker what he thinks of how Congress handled, or didn't handle, the border bill this week. The sixth grade social studies teacher from North Canton, Ohio, didn't mince words. Oh, that makes me so mad. So mad. Because we're in it, we're in it, we're in it. Oops, 45 said we need that for a campaign thing. By 45, Shoemaker means Donald Trump, who personally lobbied Republican lawmakers to oppose the bill after months of bipartisan work. Come on. Suddenly it's a bad idea, even though you helped write it? Trump is running heavily on immigration, his signature issue. And immigration is a liability for President Joe Biden right now, something border legislation might have helped. A recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll found that only 29% of Americans, including just over half of Democrats, approve of Biden's performance on immigration. Across the board, voters I spoke to said the U.S. immigration system needs fixing. They differed on what that means, though, or whether this bill would have improved anything. Democrats were angry at Trump's meddling. Here's Bobby Christiansen from Bountiful, Utah. It disappointed me so badly, I, I felt like I wanted to just cry. I'm just so angry that we have the interference in our politics by a man who is not in office and that these Republicans do not remember that they are working for the people. She likes the idea of greater border security, but thinks the deal fell short in a lot of areas. I was listening to Elizabeth Warren. She was on Colbert. She said, you know, the things that they had wanted in the bill with DACA and some of the other things, but they weren't able to get that. So they worked with what they could get. Some Republican voters, meanwhile, had their own problems. Some believed incorrectly the deal would have allowed a certain number of people across the border illegally per day. Others didn't like that it contained foreign aid. Here's Danita Pensky from Megalia, California. The immigration thing is something that belongs to our country and our country alone. And then they are, they're always trying to add something else to it, like Ukraine or Israel's problem in these other countries. But then the point of the bill was compromise. And compromise on immigration in particular is just hard for some voters, not to mention politicians, to stomach. Terry Lee is an independent voter from Illinois, but one who leans heavily Republican. He is among the 21 percent of voters who, given the choice of which party would handle immigration better, say they trust neither. In his case, that's because neither party is tough enough. Democrats seem to just not want to have a border, which negates the existence of a country. And the Republicans are not interested in enforcing the laws that we already have. Voter anger over this deal will likely fade by Election Day. But unless something major changes, immigration will motivate far more voters on the right than the left. Here's Lee again. I would say immigration is one of my top issues because what's been going on, it all scares the crap out of me. Fully 44 percent of Republicans say immigration is top of mind as they look ahead to November, compared to 6 percent of Democrats and 23 percent of independents. It's a reasonable bet that Donald Trump will do anything he can to keep it front and center for his voters. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we talk with a local researcher about some of the options the state might consider in dealing with the potential fallout from Stewart Healthcare's possible hospital closures. In business news, a Marlboro-based medical device maker is announcing layoffs. Hologic says it plans to lay off employees at its international locations this year. Company officials tell the Worcester Business Journal the move is part of a restructuring. They have not said how many people might be affected. A Boston-based password security company is warning customers about a fake version of its app. LastPass says the fake app appeared on the Apple iTunes store. Officials say the app was probably created to try to steal customer password information. It's not clear how the app made it to the app store. The time is 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by midnight tonight to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. And if you'd like to get 10% off the perfect gift, today is the last day to do so. It's only until midnight tonight that we'll be able to send these beautiful flowers, beautiful Winston flowers for you at a 10% discount. So if you wanted to send a dozen long stem red roses, they're $135 today. After today, they're $150. And remember, your gift helps support the journalism that keeps your community strong. Here's the number to call. It's one 800 900 9287. The website's WBUR.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. It's been a week since Stewart Healthcare promised to keep operating its nine Massachusetts hospitals for the time being. Stewart said it made a financial deal to keep hospitals open while it negotiates a potential transfer of ownership of its medical facilities. The state says it's monitoring Stewart hospitals, some of them daily, to ensure the quality of patient care. The situation at Stewart has raised questions about oversight and what the state might do to preserve hospitals. We talked about this with Alan Sager. He's a Boston University professor of health law policy and management, and he says the state should take several steps to protect not just Stewart, but other medical facilities. The state doesn't even have a list of which hospitals are needed and which emergency rooms are needed to protect the health of the public. The state doesn't have a receivership law that will allow the state quickly to move in to take control of needed hospitals that are in financial trouble and stabilize them. The state doesn't have 
a hospital security trust fund, and fourth, the whole financial underpinning of our health care rests on quicksand because we don't have a functioning free market and we don't have effective government that's able to wrap its arms around health care. But all four things are possible. But in this situation where we are now, these are some long-term things you're talking about. What do, you, what do you think the state can do in the short term? In the short term, the legislature could enact a receivership law quickly, and it could begin to finance a hospitalization trust fund with a small one-quarter of 1% assessment on the patient care revenue of each needed hospital and a 1% tax on interest and dividend and capital gains. But right now, state government is playing catch-up. They're trying to fix the airplane uh, while it's in danger of crashing to the ground. Is there a parachute anywhere? Massachusetts hospitals this year will spend around $45 billion. We've got the money. I think the leadership in the legislature and in the governor's office for decades has been weak. It's time to play catch-up quickly. I think there is time. And we may need to adopt some short-term expedients to keep open steward hospitals that might be crashing financially. Isn't there a lot of financial red tape because of stewards' incredible debt? There are a lot of other things besides just jumping in and, and starting to run the hospital, aren't there? Right. Some of this would be a lawyer's paradise for heavy billing to untangle the mess we're in. Chapter 11 bankruptcy might be might well be inevitable. That would be a problem for Stewart and the people who unwisely lent Stewart money. It's not a problem for the citizens of the Commonwealth who need Stewart hospitals to be taken out of Stewart's hands. You know, we've heard a lot about Stewart not releasing its financial documents, which of course is still the subject of litigation and has been for years. It's a private company. It says it doesn't have to release the documents that other hospitals do because it's proprietary information, essentially. Would that financial information have helped the state take action sooner? Had Stewart been complying with state law and regularly providing needed financial information, that might have been helpful. But state government would have had to be motivated to take action. State government would have needed tools like a receivership law, accurate current financial information and complete financial information, and also a willingness to intervene, to recognize that hospitals are not chips in some poker game. They're one of the key foundations of our health care. Ellen Sager, Boston University Professor of Health Law Policy and Management, thanks so much for speaking with WBUR's Morning Edition. You bet. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by midnight tonight to save 10% on all four choices. They include a Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. 
That's right, 10% off your Valentine's Day gift that helps support WBUR ends at midnight tonight. So if you did want to send, say, two dozen long-stem red roses, right now they would be $225, or $225 and after today, $250. 10% off, ends at midnight. Get your flowers, beautiful Winston flowers, and help support WBUR by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. Why again is it two to four times cheaper to buy some prescription drugs in, say, Australia, Canada, or France? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The CEOs of three pharmaceutical giants got tough questions on Capitol Hill yesterday about the venerable arrangement where medicines can cost a lot more in the U.S. than in other countries. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has details. The hearing was held by the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, chaired by Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Sanders says the drug makers charge much more for drugs here. He says the diabetes drug Genuvia costs almost $7,000 in the U.S., compared to $900 in Canada and just 200 in France. The outrageous cost of the prescription drugs in America means that one out of four of our people go to the doctor, get a prescription, and they cannot afford to fill that prescription. How many die as a result of that? How many suffer unnecessarily? Pharmaceutical executives blame the high prices on middlemen known as pharmacy benefit managers who negotiate prices with drug makers for insurance companies and employers. The CEOs also said lower drug prices would discourage research and development on new drugs. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Number nerds, and who doesn't like a juicy round number? The popular investment tool, the S&P 500 Stock Index, did pop above 5,000 yesterday for a bit. It's just below to start the day. That index is up 22% in a year. The NASDAQ remains 1.6% below its all-time high set in the fall of 2021. Stock index futures this morning are up between 3 and 4 tenths percent. Transgender people in the U.S. have much higher rates of economic hardship than the general population, according to a survey of over 90,000 trans people out this week. About one in three trans people said that they were living in poverty versus just over one in 10 for the general population. 18% were unemployed and 11% said they've lost a job because of their gender identity or expression. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports on what is behind these outcomes. Discrimination by hiring managers likely plays a role here, says Shanna Katari, an associate professor at the University of Michigan. So it might not be something as explicit as I'm not hiring you because you're trans, but I'm not hiring you because you don't match my idea of what a woman should look like. The survey also found over a quarter of trans people couldn't afford to go to a doctor when they needed to. And that can have economic consequences, too, says Rodrigo hang Leitonen, executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality, which conducted the survey. The longer any kind of health condition goes untreated, the harder it is to navigate your daily life and meet deadlines and get to work on time and things like that. 
In some communities, at least, there are resources the trans community can tap into, including the San Francisco LGBT Center. Drew Lockhart is its director of employment services. We work to really identify which employers are going to support community members. Because an inclusive employer, Lockhart says, can help trans workers get a job and thrive in it. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by the podcast Ripple, a new investigative podcast from Western Sound and APM Studios. Listen now to Ripple. I keep hearing about some kind of match or contest between big guys from Kansas City and San Francisco on Sunday. The prediction is that more than 100 million people are going to tune into the Super Bowl. It's very rare so many people will look at the same thing at the same time in our streaming when we want to era. This time of year, I get to talk to Janine Poggi, the editor-in-chief of Ad Age, who's looked at the ads. Hey, Janine. Hi, it's my favorite time. Now, you've seen more of the ads than I have. I've poked through a bunch. I didn't see anything that just, like, was so side-splitting I couldn't breathe. Did you see anything funny? You know, it's the problem with humor, right? A lot of it sort of blends together. It takes a lot to stand out when you try to do humor, and a lot of the Super Bowl ads are. I thought the BMW ad with Christopher Walken, which you have a whole bunch of people trying to imitate him, a little cameo from Usher in it. I thought that was funny. Nice ride. It's the real deal. 100%. Electric. It's the real deal. Yeah. Janine, that is the one that I did think was funny. It was about, except no substitutes, there's only one authentic BMW and one authentic Christopher Walken. Yeah, and what else do you like? I like the E-Trade one. The E-Trade Babies, always a fan favorite, right? But the E-Trade Babies are playing pickleball, and it was just cute, right? Not laugh out loud, but enjoyable and cute nonetheless. These guys are intense. We got nothing to worry about. With E-Trade from Morgan Stanley, we're ready for whatever gets served up. Dude, you got to work on your trash talk. I'd rather work on saving for retirement. Now, once upon a time in this world, Janine, there was an industry called cryptocurrency. And they used to, back in the day, advertise a lot in the Super Bowl. Are you seeing much crypto? No, you know, not surprising here, given what happened with the crypto market. We did see like a crypto bubble of sorts where a bunch of crypto brands advertised, sort of like the dot-com bubble, if you remember. All of the brands, the pets.com of the world that advertised in the Super Bowl and then the next year went out of business. (laughs) Similarly, we're just not seeing that in the Super Bowl this year. There is some emerging tech conversations going on, especially around AI, not necessarily AI companies, advertising in the Super Bowl, but how AI is being applied. And it is the 2024 Super Bowl. I'm supposed to say these syllables. Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey. Are brands jumping aboard that at all? I don't see how we could not talk about that. Uh, Look, you're not. Are you necessarily going to see you know, Taylor Swift in a commercial. No, not necessarily. But there is no way we know that all of these agencies that create the Super Bowl commercials for brands, they're in their war rooms, gearing up with the meme factories of any way brands could lean into any Taylor Swift moment. Janine Poggi, editor at Ad Age. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Janine and I also discuss how brands, with just a couple of exceptions, are avoiding issues capital I in their Super Bowl ads, trying to keep the trolls and the backlash at bay. That'll also be in the Marketplace Morning Report podcast feed or online at Marketplace.org. 
Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietnan. Our engineers are Jessen Dooler and John Brewington. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. From APM, American Public Media. Hi, I'm Dori Halpern, the senior editor at On Point. From the moment the sweet nurse laid all seven pounds, 10 ounces of her on my chest, I was fully and completely hers. Ellie was born in April. So this Valentine's Day is all about the new great love in my life. I want her to be happy and independent and strong, but mostly I want her to know how loved she is every single day. How the love her dad and I have for her has made our lives infinitely better. It's a love so big, it is who I am now. Send the great loving your life flowers on Valentine's Day and send them through WBUR to help us all have the conversations we need to have every day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. And if you choose the perfect gift and order it today, you'll save 10%. That's right, 10% off the regular price of Winston Flowers, but only today. So if you'd like to get, say, a dozen long stem red roses, they're $135 today as opposed to $150 after today. But if you go to WBUR.org, just just a little advice here, check out the ultimate romance arrangement. This is a stunning, absolutely stunning arrangement that will really make a statement this Valentine's Day. Remember, it's 10% off today only. Here's a number to call, 800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. Order your Valentine's Day gift through us and help support local journalism. Thanks so much. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer, daily swim lessons in heated pools, and AC for indoors. MaplewoodYearRound.com. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.